Dave, I knew about you from your days at Anderson Consulting and your name recently surfaced in another interview that I did with, with Greg Owens. So I look forward to learning more about you and your perspectives on what I say is this boring field of supply chain management. Before we get into the, that side of it, let's, let's kind of start with your early days. Are there any significant life experiences or anything that shaped who you are? Thanks, Chris, for inviting me here. I don't usually get to talk about the early days, so this will be interesting. Now, it goes back to when I was finishing up my PhD, which wasn't in supply chain. We didn't have PhDs in supply chains back then. It was in an exotic field of mathematics and economics called econometrics. I was finishing my uh, dissertation, simultaneously having children, having to support a family. So uh, my thesis advisor said, you know, the U.S. Department of Transportation is hiring PhDs to do research in, at the Transportation Systems Center at Kendall Square, Cambridge. You would be a great, great fit over there. So I went over, I interviewed with them. They offered me a well-paid position, and uh, I did some really interesting things. I worked on major issues for in transportation for the U.S. economy, such as Project Independence, which most of you would never have heard of if you hadn't heard of the oil crisis in the early 1970s. But and we, we were uh, trying to figure out how we could become energy independent. And I worked on that for at least a year. Um, worked on another one called the National Waterway Study, which looked at, in this case, seeing what extra repairs and additional waterways we might need in the United States to handle traffic from the Midwest to the to New Orleans. And, and I sort of caught the bug at that point. I said, wow, this stuff's, this stuff's pretty interesting. And here I am, um, you know, many, many years later, I'm still, still doing transportation supply chain stuff every day. Many people I talked to, as you said, there wasn't so I graduated college um, 1990. There was not, I'm an industrial engineer, so there was not, there was, there was barely, barely a logistics class, if, if that, but it was typically logistics was part of a marketing book. And there was no supply chain at all, as you had mentioned. So it's interesting how, how things evolved. I talked to, I'm out of Atlanta, so there's professors here at Georgia Tech, and a lot of their, the work comes out of operations research, but it kind of sounds like that's a little bit about what you were talking about from the transportation side. It actually fit with, because part of econometrics is uh, ops research. So I, I did know a lot about that space and, and, uh, and, and the different algorithms one would use to you know, optimize various networks and all. So I actually got to use part of my work and my dissertation work all through my life, actually. And, and because it's such an integral part of, uh, of supply chain, you know, you're always, I go back to the days and consulting days where we, we would optimize networks for a company, maybe every five years. And um, you would, they would say, geez, well, maybe we better look at where our plants and warehouses are. And let's look at cost to serve and, 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 uh, and service levels and decide if we need more warehouses, fewer warehouses, more plants. And, and, you know, it's, it's evolved to today, where there are some, some uh, companies that are looking at their networks every day and looking at where they should be positioning inventory through omni-channel uh, strategies and, and what have you here. 
but it's it's radically changed since the early days of of doing consulting in this space, and and uh, we we're, we've got a much more real time supply chain mentality than we had in the in the 1970s, and and I just wanted to add that you know it was really that whole transportation deregulation that took place that really triggered a lot of this because beforehand people couldn't really say, well, geez, I'm going to do anything I want. I'm going to ship anything anywhere. You couldn't, you know, the old joke I used to have was if you wanted to ship empty ginger ale bottles between Dayton and New York, you had to get a permit from the ICC. You know, that that was, people don't remember those days, but they're, you know, they're there. And it was, uh, it was really a crazy world. And that all of a sudden overnight, gone all the uh, all the regulations disappeared and people realized that transportation logistics supply chain we could do something with that you know we're not totally restricted by by all these government regulations so uh, you know won't enable us to build where we want do what we want with our uh, plants and distribution centers and our transportation fleets i've done a little bit of network modeling early in my career Dave, but it was something that was done as you said every three to five years but now with the technology and the ease of change, it's something people are doing more frequently. Right. That's what, that's what I see. My research goes back to 1982. That's when I found an article that, that had the first reference to supply chain management. It was by, you, you may know him, you may not, Keith Oliver, he was with Booz Allen, but that's the oh, first sure. article that I found credited him. I don't know if he's, that's true or not, but he's, he's a target to be on my show if he's listening. When did you hear the term and kind of what, how did you have an impact on the space? Well, it was it was pretty late in the game. I mean, throughout the 70s and probably most of the 80s, people talked in in transportation logistics and supply chain really didn't start to, uh, I think, hit home till the late 80s, which means the term became in, in more use. And there was a lot of criticism of it when that happened. Uh, it was interesting because People in procurement and manufacturing started saying, oh, how come you're co-opting our disciplines into this supply chain world, right? Well, I said, it's all interconnected, right? You know, you, you got uh, to buy stuff from suppliers to make it. You got to ship it to your customers. And, you know, it's not, you know, it's not like, it's not like these things all take place in, in isolation. But truthfully, that's what people thought back then. They said, oh. Well, you, you, you know, when we're doing consulting, they said, oh, you can't, you can look at where our warehouses are and, and where our plants are, but don't tell me what to make at them because no, that's, that's a separate, that's a production decision. And I said, well, what if this plants in the East coast and it's selling everything on the West coast, would you think that's a smart idea? And you have a plant on the West coast that's selling stuff on the East coast. Maybe we ought to look at reallocating some of those products and, you know, drastically reducing transportation costs, uh, you know, for for the for those uh, items, and that it was it was a struggle early on to get people to have that acceptance, and goes back to the CLM days, Council Logistics Management, and then charges changed their name to the CSCMP, Council of the Supply Chain Management Professionals, and you you had a it was it was, it was somewhat in affront to all these other organizations that. That thought they owned those spaces uh, in manufacturing, procurement, and you know even OR, 
in ops research, there are all these ops research organizations. When you're talking about ops research inside that, that's, that's for us to do, uh, not, not for you guys. And, you know, it's been an interesting path of evolution. But in, as you say, today, there's pretty strong acceptance in, in this in this new era we're in where everybody everybody realizes supply chains are you may be three three days away from death if they stop working you know that's true <laughs> right i mean it's not there's not a lot of stock there's not a lot of food sitting in a warehouse next to your retail store that's going to be able to have more than a three-day replenishment cycle so it's like uh Maybe it is important after all, but uh, we're starting to see some of that. You know, the press is starting to get it, and, and people I think are starting to understand now that it's a, it's something to be uh, to really be reckoned with, and and not something to be made fun of. When I started doing it, people made fun of me. Oh, you're a consultant, you know, uh, you know, you uh, you borrow my watch and tell me my time. And and uh, the old joke we used to have inside the consultancy says, well, you're a client. And you can't tell time, but have to. So, <laughs> you know, it's a uh, it's, it's 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 changed a lot since then. Well, maybe I I, I know that that little analogy. Maybe I learned it from you or some people that work for you. But yeah, the definition of a consultant is somebody that they, you ask them what time it is, they say, "Give me your watch, and I'll tell you." And then they keep your watch. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's where it came from. Yeah, no, same same idea. I tried to uh, I tried to make it a little more pejorative among ourselves here by uh, by saying the client couldn't tell time. So, <laughs> right, that's good, or else they wouldn't need the help. It's right. I also it's interesting you're on the three days analogy. I I interviewed Rebecca Costa. She's a kind of a futurist person. She just talks about trends and what's going on. Not a supply chain person at all, but she did talk about supply chains in one of her TED talks, and I, so I, I talked to her about it. And she said the same thing. That, that was interesting. I think she used three days. She said what she knows about three, supply chain is we're, th we're, we're three days away from anarchy because as soon as people can't get food, they're going to be in an uproar. So it was interesting how you use that same analogy. Yeah. I'm not sure that's sunk into a lot of people. You know, and it's, and it's all a function of the, the leading out of supply chains that we're you know, paying a heavy price for at the moment in many cases that, you know, we made it so, we made it so much all the just in time. Uh, and, and as I, we used to say, just in time is just ran out if you uh, don't plan it well. Uh, and it, uh, it, it really, I think we're going to have a period of time now where we're going to be relooking a lot of just in time philosophies around it. And uh, people say, well, what's going to be the impact? I say, well, I think we're going to, you know, we're going to see we're going to see a lot more inventory in in channels, and it's not just because of the just-in-time phenomena running its course. It's also because of omni-channel. You have to put inventory in a lot more places so that you can satisfy the customer. And it's that whole idea of a linear supply chain where where you went from you know a plant to a distribution center to maybe a retailer's warehouse to a store to a customer. That's that's all been blown up in the last three or four years, and 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 now all all I, I spend my days doing is looking at exotic dropship technologies and omni-channel management technologies that look at cross to cost to serve, across various and sundry methods of getting a product to the customer, and and the 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 complexity of decision making has just skyrocketed 
you know, if, if you're a company out there trying to do business, I don't care whether you're a manufacturer, distributor, or retailer, you're, you're going to be seriously impacted by this, especially when, you know, maybe a retailer comes back to you and says, well, I want to drop ship my stuff for you. I don't want to warehouse it. And you say, drop ship? What's that? <laughs> you know, what, what, what does that mean? It means, oh, I mean, I got to carry the inventory and uh, uh, yes, on my books and uh, then I got to uh, sh ship it for you. And uh, that, that'd that be about right. And uh, it's, a, it's a fast growing trend. One that, that you know, omni-channels not going to, uh, not going to decelerate in, in the least, but makes, makes for fascinating times here. Well, just, just to go back to one of the things you said, you talked about early days procurement, they got excited when you started talking about impeding on their space. I, I still see that today, Dave. I mean, when I'm, when I'm teaching at companies or, or talking to them about supply chain, so many times procurement says that, you know, why should I care? I'm not in supply chain. And I'm like, well, well wait a minute. You're a big part of the supply chain. It has a lot to do with politics, I believe, within companies. But I still see that mentality today. Now I know why. Yeah. And now we, 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 we just we hear it a lot as well and it, it's it makes it tricky when you really need to get procurement on board to a supply chain strategy and a lot of it goes back to questions of when we were working doing some work with dell computer and dell was saying they didn't want to bring all the accessorial products into their own facilities to match up to the laptop they didn't want to do all it themselves they wanted to they wanted to have facilities where they only stored their laptop and they wanted just in time accessories to be brought in that would be ready to package out, um, you know, have a couple of days inventory instead of rows and rows of cords and mice and manuals and whatever else. And I mean, procurement, the procurement guys at the other end, you know, in the supplier world were, were like, what no we, we can't do that you know, that's that's crazy we we can't run stuff you know we have to make big big runs of this stuff to do and they said well figure it out <laughs> yeah. you want to do business with us figure it out right and uh of course they did they had to hold more inventory themselves but it uh it it, it was kind of a, a big awakening companies like dell when they pushed back in the procurement space that I think created a lot of the a lot of the animosity that suppliers had it pretty nice. You know, they could you know, do do what they wanted back back up on the supply chain and not worry about downstream. And that's certainly not the case today. Yeah, it was even there's been a lot of change in supply chain roles. I remember back when transportation departments used to have a lot of authorities within companies because they had their own little kingdoms, you know, they they could were in charge of a lot of things. And then you throw in Things like transportation management systems, where there's a lot more visibility, things change pretty quick. Right. I have a apocryphal story about that. I, I won't say who the client was, but uh, the guy that was head of transportation went into his boss and said, "Transportation rates didn't go up last year, and I saved the company a lot of money. And do I get my bonus?" And the boss looked at him and said, "What?" He said, "Well, transportation rates didn't go up." And he, the boss said, do you have anything to do with that? And he said, uh, no, no, but I should get a bonus still, right? <laughs> but, but those were the days. Those were the days. I mean, that was a real story. As I say, I, I knew the guy that is not with them anymore. 
Sure, sure. <laughs> but that's sure. the that was the attitude. It was like, oh, you know, we're transportation. It's just, it's a cost center. Just sits there. And you know, if if I don't, if it does, if the rates don't go up, I didn't do anything to rejigger the network or negotiate new contracts with with carriers. No, I didn't do any of that. You know, just general rates didn't go up, and no, the tariffs didn't increase. And it's like, okay, right. <laughs> of course, today, um, you know, on, on something like transportation, it's not only not considered well, it is a cost center, but it's considered just as much a customer service center when. Uh, when we were, my, my first investment was was my partner's company, Lean Logistics. And, and when we looked at the users, it was a transportation management systems company. When we looked at the, the user base inside a company, it was 80% customer service was in there pinging the TMS to find out where this stuff was so they could tell the customer. And 20% of the users were the transportation guys. And it's like, okay, well, now, no, maybe customer service big part of supply chain too. Although I never, I never claimed that. <laughs> sure, they they can have their own world out there, but it's it's interesting how you know you you create a new a new technology and you think oh well this you know hundred percent of the users are going to be the transportation guys. It turns out I mean that pl plenty of other parts of the organization were looking at that data for the first time and thinking. Oh my God, I can answer the question. Where's my stuff? <laughs> yeah, you obviously know the space. So I, I mentioned at the start, I, I worked in your organization. Actually, part of my career is, is because of you. I worked, I was a consultant at Anderson, which became Accenture. And you were very influential in, in getting them, I would say, into the logistics of the supply chain space. How, how did all that happen? I mean, you're, you're very, you've had a big impact on a lot of people's careers from what I know. So how did that happen? How did you, how did you start that? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, you know, interesting story. Um, you know, Bill Cocasino, he was the first. Uh, he was the first one into Anderson Consulting, and okay. Bill and I would go. You know, God love him. He's now now passed, but uh, he and I went back at least ten years before we went to to Anderson. We, we were competitors. I was at a company called a consultancy, Temple Barker and Sloan, which had a big chunk of supply chain, well, transportation consulting. And, he, you know, he was at Arthur D. Little, and they were separated by about 10 minutes on Route 2, in, uh, one in Lexington and one in Cambridge. And we would compete endlessly um, for the same basic uh, network analysis jobs, transportation analysis, and uh, we, we were friendly, friendly competitors. Anderson Consulting approached both of us, which I didn't know, basically simultaneously, and said, "Geez, do you you know you you want to you want to come over and do this?" And I said, well, "I don't know, I don't know if I want to do that right right now." And Bill, Bill was, I'll give him a, give him the credit. Bill was much more far sighted. He said. Damn, that sounds like a, that sounds cool. Yeah, I'd I'd like to do that, and and so he got over there and he was there a few months and so he started calling me and saying, hey, you know, what are you doing? Right? Well, you know, I I was trying to decide what to do next. I'd taken some time off, uh, and and he, he said, oh, come on over here with great great opportunities to to do this. And I said, well, I'll, I'll come over and 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 talk and. 
Um, the interesting thing about Accenture, uh, what was Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture, was that unlike Pricewaterhouse or Deloitte, where all the partners were kind of financial guys, financial engineering guys, that many of the partners at, at Anderson Consulting, most of them weren't because they were operations kind of guys, because that's how the split went between Arthur Anderson and, and Anderson Consulting was, you know, Arthur Anderson had all the tax and financial engineering crowd. And then as they built their other consultancies, uh, up came operations as a big area that the clients were asking for. And, and so, and then of course, technology, uh, you know, all the uh, information technology systems were coming online. And so, and so it, uh, you know, as they say, the, the stories, the, it was a quick story. I, I, I started meeting these partners. I met about 20 of them. And I said, damn, these guys know what they're doing. And they have a tremendous need for supply chain skills to do it. So, you know, Bill and I went and we, you know, we, we built it out along with Greg. And, uh, you know, there's literally uh, probably 100 other partners that some of them are still there uh, and uh, slowly retiring that that were part of that that practice um, and it it really did become a uh, of course the global leader um, in in that space and and I spent time in San Francisco um, growing the West Coast and Asia then they asked me to move to London and 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 grow Europe and and so I, I moved around a lot which and I loved it. Um, Got a lot of exposure. It's paid. It's paid huge dividends for me in in our own work because we now do a lot of investing in Europe, and I understand supply chain over there. So I know if it's the right thing, you know that uh, if what this startup is talking about is that, you know, is that really going to work here? You know, because <laughs> it's very different than the U.S. You know, supply chains are pretty pretty radically different over there than they are here. So it, it pays to have spent time doing that thing as well but it, I, I, I always I always felt that Anderson Consulting Accenture were, were the best years of my life except for now except for now now I right you know, myself and my partner were our own bosses we run our own company and and we don't report to anybody and that's that's pretty damn good but yeah <laughs> but back then I I, uh, I loved uh, I, I loved it that's where I think uh, that made the price waterhouses the world the Deloitte's IBM's all start to add supply chain capabilities, you know, in for uh, you name it, that all, all of that was predicated, you know, by, by, I think, uh, AC's move in the early 90s, to get into that space. Now you had mentioned, you know, part of your team helping grow that was that you said, Greg, was that Greg Owens? Yes. Or, yeah, because I, I had him on a show. Uh, yes, I listened to your podcast oh, yeah. with, with Greg. Yeah, he's had a He's had a real colorful career, you know, in, in what what he's done uh, beyond Accenture into Magnogistics and Iron Planet. And uh, he's, he's in a similar one right now. I can't remember its name, but but uh, he's another one that, you know, retire. Right? I, I doubt it. I mean, he was he had huge energy as a consultant and, and really. Uh, uh, I, I always admired him for his uh, his his skill with working with people. He always did a great job, you know, managing uh, managing these diverse teams out there. Um, and it was a time when 
there weren't many women or people of color. Mm -hmm. and, and we hired a lot. There were a lot of women that were really that got their start in supply chain. Some that went on to be senior vice presidents at Walmart in supply chain that they started, you know, in Atlanta under Greg and under his tutelage. And, and there's a there's a great history of uh, people like that that are that have gone on to um, you know really really fantastic careers uh, you know as a result of, of being a part of that early stage stuff being hired out of Georgia Tech or Tennessee or Ohio State or Michigan State and brought in raw to uh, consulting and learn on the fly you know all right you're on this team head out there and <laughs> start solving these problems and it's like uh, uh throwing 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 young people into situations like that i think it's the best best learning experience they you know they have a, they have a lot of uh, great knowledge coming out of college but it's when you get in there and you start facing a client who probably doesn't want you there to start with you know it's like oh you know, Joe, you got to do this supply chain study, and it, you know, it's like, what's wrong with what's wrong with my what's wrong with my organization again? It's like, well, I think we got to look at the future, Joe, and it's like, and, and we're going to bring this consultant in, you know, called uh, Anderson Consulting, and they're going to help you, right? It's like, sure. <laughs> Those first meetings were never much fun, you know. The guys staring at you across the table, thinking, "Oh my God, I'm stuck with these people for." You know months and uh, i don't want to do this and you know having a having a young person be able to overcome that because they're the ones on the front line most of the time not the partners is a is a real real learning experience and i think it's you just can't get it anywhere else although if you're not on the front line you know you can try to read a book about it but it's not the same thing as facing it every day so uh, I, I I look back and, and with great fondness to the literally hundreds of people that worked with us. And I keep in touch with a lot of them. I think on LinkedIn, I've got like 700 uh, connections with uh, former AC or AC current Accenture people that are still there uh, that uh, I, uh, I communicate with every once in a while. So it's, it's a great fraternity that uh, exists uh, out there of the the, the supply chain guys from Accenture. Yeah, just to go back to what you were talking about, consultants coming in and, and people, you know, resistant to change. That's one of my rules I, I say is that change is implied criticism that what you're doing is wrong. So as soon as you say we need to change, people get defensive. <laughs> so I, I've been in that spot several times, probably some on both sides of the table, probably. Sure. But, well, you know, the trick, the trick, the trick is I always taught the kids is like, you got to make it their idea. I said, and he said, well, how do you do that? They, they don't want to do any of this. I said, just what I said, just remember what I just said. You have to make it their idea. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And so, you know, you start talking about, well, how things could change. And the guy says, well, gee, yeah, we could do, we could also do this. And just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you get this open mind meld between the client and the team that says, oh, well, these guys, these guys listen to what I say. And, you know, they had some good ideas too, but I'm going to be the one going up to my bosses and owning this thing, right? And it's like, they're not going to do it, right? And it's like, wow, if this is really cool, this will save us all that money, you know, bonus, good time. <laughs>
So, uh, you know, it's, uh, you kind of, you gotta, if you're going to be successful in most any, any business, it's, you know, I think you've got to give, you've got to make sure the credit's passed around. I always passed it around to the team. I said, no, yeah, well, I might've had some of these ideas, but I said, you guys made them real. I just, I just gave you some examples of what you might look at, you know, uh, you made them real. Yeah. And I'll go back to another thing you said that, that's pretty profound. I mean, now it's common, but they, they still talk about it, but you were in, you and your team were influential in, in, in a lot of different ways, a visionary, but and specifically the hiring practices, I never thought about that, but you know, not only did you create and start a practice called logistics or supply chain for a major consultancy, as you said yourself, you were hiring minorities and females and, and you know what, 20 years ago, that was kind of unusual. So yep. that's, that's yep. good as and, well. And many of them are in, in, in very, very high positions in, in yeah. private, in public companies today. I should say a few things about how we hired. We were part of the strategy practice at, at Anderson Consulting Accenture. And they, they wanted us to hire, you know, Harvard MBAs. And, and Bill and I and Greg in particular, you know, George, Greg, Georgia Tech guy, engineering trained, says, Dave, we don't want those, those MBAs in here. <laughs> you know, you know, they're going to mess things up. You know, they they don't want to be partner in two years. And I said, you know, we have to, we got to hire these kids out of school and train them how to do this stuff. And I said, Greg, just singing my song. And and so we would focus on our ideal candidate was someone that came out of a supply chain management program, maybe undergraduate or with an MA. They went to work for Pepsi and ran a regional logistics organization for. Uh, a few years and so they you know they had real operational experience as well and then we'd go you know we'd just go out and pick them off with sick the recruiters after you know the alumni associations at these universities says where are these kids now right and they're keeping track of them said oh he said pepsi oh well oh rich bergman let's bring him in right he was he was, was my first hire on the west coast and and came in i can remember him arriving with his his car and he had his boat in the trailer. He came from the Midwest with his with his motorboat. <laughs> it, was a, it was a fishing boat. I said, well, cool, man. Is it parked out front in San Francisco on the street there? And he said, well, yeah. I said, well, we better find you a place to live, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but those were the those are the guys that, that could get in there and have instant credibility with with the clients. And it was it, was, it made a huge difference. And I'm not defaming the MBAs. I mean, I hired plenty of MBAs as well. It's just you know, they, they, they were, they, they, they were in a different, they had a different plane of experience. They, they never run a warehouse and never had their, uh, never been pulled through a pay window by a teamster and <laughs> trying to extract this paycheck from them or got sh thought he was shorter on his paycheck. And you, you, you hear some stories for those kids that uh, were, were always amazing, but you know, it's, 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 they, they lived the real life in supply chain, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's probably, I, I never thought about it, Dave, but that's probably how I got there. I was an experienced hire and uh, I, I call them box kickers now. You know, I was a box kicker. I was out there yeah. doing stuff, watching it move on the conveyors or whatever. So I spent, you know, the first five or six years of my career doing time studies and, and tracking production and designing warehouses and had my fair share of, of Teamster names of, you know, shiny pants or they'd call me shiny pants or Docker boy because, you know, I was the guy that wore the nice clothes in the factory. So. 
Right. Yeah. 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 I never, that's I never the, thought about that. Yeah. That, that, that's the, uh, I mean, that, I mean, you, you, you were an incredibly valuable part of that, that process, right? Because I mean, just went to maybe Princeton undergraduate, the MBA went to Harvard and, and maybe took one of, there is a supply chain course at Harvard. Then they, and then would think they were supply chain experts. And then they come out and meet guys like you. And then you'd say, because we had joint teams at the time, if you remember right, Chris, a strategy team that was doing a broader strategy study mm-hmm. that involved supply chain. And you meet some of the MBAs and they say, well, what are you doing over there? And you tell them and, and they say, oh, I don't know about that. You know, it's like, that's not what we were taught in Harvard, how to, well, man, you, you know, if you're going to understand what's going on in the plant, you better get your ass in there <laughs> instead of sitting and reading a book about it. And, uh, you know, it, uh, we, we, we took great, great pride in, in bringing in as many, uh, many experiences, hires like yourself as you could, because it, it made a huge difference in our ability to deliver to the client and to have that trust factor and to have multiple engagements with the client rather than a one and done situation. Uh, it just was, was the smart way to, to uh, make it happen. But I can imagine, as I had talked about, your your lineage runs long. I mean, the number of people that had to have come through at that time when you were there, that's got to make you feel, I'm going to say it, good or important, but, you know, has an impact. I mean, you've had a lot of, a big impact on a lot of people, as I yeah, said. I, so. I, I, I certainly appreciate it. I, I, I hear that quite a bit. And, and I hear it often when I'm really surprised from somebody that I thought either didn't like me or, 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 um, or didn't didn't appreciate me and then I'll, I'll get these little notes every once in a while from someone like that that said you really made a big difference in my career you know you took me aside one day and said xyz to me and you said it in a really nice way and i was really pissed that you said it to me because I, you know i thought i knew what i was doing and i was and and uh, you know it, you know, I, I had to stew on it for quite a while before i realized that you know what you're only trying to help me be more successful you, you, you weren't trying to take away my ego you weren't trying to embarrass me in front of a client you never you know you were really trying to help me be successful because otherwise you know uh, we you know greg bill and dave uh we were three of hundreds of people we, we couldn't do all the work we had you know many millions tens hundreds of millions of dollars of business and you gotta have kids do the work, right? So <laughs> yeah. you better go out there and spend a lot of time being nice to them because you know they they're on the bleeding edge of that work and staying up late at night and running spreadsheets and crunching crunching optimization tools and, and uh, you know writing all these reports and the partners would just show up the day before and say yeah show me that stuff right yeah it looks good looks like we're ready <laughs> or uh, I don't like these results, man. You've got to go back and revise all that out. We'll meet at six in the morning and uh, see what we're up to here. <laughs> uh, and it's not that the partners didn't communicate before that, but sometimes people didn't listen either. And sometimes the report didn't reflect what was the agreed upon, shall we say, uh, path forward for, for the client. And someone else thought they had a better idea. It's like... Well, I already know the client has rejected that idea. So it's like, even though you think it's a great one, I'm not going to stand up in front of the executive and, and uh, tell them these full of shit, pardon my English. 
<laughs> sure. Well, to your point about uh, you didn't know if everybody always liked you. I guess it's because you were trying to give coaching or career guidance, but that's something somebody told me early in my career is, you know, I was once, I was probably complaining that, my, you know, my boss was writing me for some reason. And they told me, they said, don't, don't complain. If your boss is writing you, that means they care. When you should be concerned is when they don't ride you, because that means they don't care. They've already checked out. So <laughs> that's a good, that was a good lesson for me to learn. Yeah. No, and it's carried over to our, our, you know, what we do nowadays in supply chain investing. And, and there are, there are certain, there are certain invest, we sort of, have, we put them in three buckets. There, there are people we give up a lot of time to because they ask the right questions. They want our help. There are people that are doing the rights. That's one bucket. The second one is people are doing pretty well. They don't, maybe once a quarter we check in, but they're doing just fine. And the third ones is they're not doing well at all. They don't ask for our help when we impinge on them and say, you know, look, we got to talk about this. This is, you guys are running out of money. And, and they, they, they listen, they say, oh yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. We'll do that. And then, then they never do it. Right. And it's like, okay, well, all right. And uh, at that point, my partner and I look at each other and say, well, the money spigot got turned off. <laughs> sure. It's just, I'm sorry, guys. You know, I'm, and, and they say, well, we're going to find some money elsewhere. And they say, well, they got to talk to us too, because they're going to say, well, how come Dave's not, Dan, not investing in this? Well, I'm not going to lie. You guys didn't listen to us, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it happens, happens. It happens frequently, unfortunately. It happens frequently. Uh, well, that's a good segue, Dave. So you, you re, I don't say you retired, whatever the term is, left Accenture <laughs> early, early 2000s, from what I can tell, on LinkedIn. And by the way, I think you have the, the longest LinkedIn profile I've seen with all of your board memberships and company, I had to click more, more info five times, I think. But um, so, so what are you doing now? I mean, did you, you retired from Accenture and then you started what you're doing now or what, what are you right. up to these days? Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, the senior partners, there were about 50 of us were asked to stay a couple of extra years. So it's normal retirement was 57 and we were really close to doing the, uh, the uh, IPO. We'd, we'd freed ourselves from Anderson, Arthur Anderson, and and uh, and we decided the best way to go forward was not as a partnership, but as as a public company, which I, I actually agreed with. There's a whole number of reasons for that I won't go into. But anyway, um, so I stayed two years, and and um, I think we did the IPO May 2001, and I said, well, what does that mean? Well, I they said. The other partners that you know weren't the 50 partners they've got an eight-year tie-up of their money for you guys we're just going to write you a check <laughs> so uh there was some tax planning involved i might add i can imagine it wasn't quite imagine. the same as i just did it but we were free a few stayed a few decided to stay and do some more um but most of us said okay um i'm going to do something differently Supply Chain is Boring is part of the Supply Chain Now Network, the voice of supply chain. Interested in sponsoring this show or others to help you get your message out? Send a note to chris at supplychainnow.com. We can also help with world-class supply chain education and certification workshops for you or your team. Thanks for listening. And remember, supply chain is boring. Supply Chain Now.